Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. I've entitled the morning's message, A Prophet Without Honor. And the Lord was still putting this Bible study together at 4.30 in my head this morning. (laughs) And I have to admit, it took me a long time to straighten out our text, whether or not this is happening in Nazareth. And you'll have a better picture of it as we go through our study this morning. But let's read where Paul read for us earlier. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, "What? Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary?" And brothers of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could not do many mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, And he marveled because of their unbelief, and then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Let's piece some things together here. Go to chapter 1 of Mark, and um, we're going to tie this together with Luke's account. Mark 1, verse 12, this is right after his baptism. It tells us, and immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness, 40 days tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 4, and do a little bit more piecing together of this. And we find that the first verses from 1 to 12 is what we just read. And Mark is quick and to the point. We're talking about this often, and immediately, and quickly. And so we only have two verses But Luke is going to give us 13 verses of the same account to get into quite a bit of detail of the temptation. And then we read in verse 14 that right after this, it says, Then Jesus returned, verse 14, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding nations, and he taught in their synagogue, being glorified by all, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, and then there's a period. I want you to stop there. We're going to do a little, I want to do a little sidetrack. And again, as we teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I want you to see the importance of prophecy, but how in one verse it can be a a double prophecy, such is the case right here. So keep your finger here because we'll be coming back, but go to Isaiah chapter 61, 
And we'll discover that instead of a period where Jesus stopped, there's actually a comma. Let's read the same thing. Isaiah 61. So this is a prophecy that is being, Jesus is going to say, this is being fulfilled right now, right here, today. So Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, comma, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and that's where he stopped. But he stopped at a comma. The rest of the sentence says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now let's go back to Luke and look at verse 19 again to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, period. And then he says, he closed the book right in the middle of a comma and gave it back to the attendants and sat down and the eyes of all who were there in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say unto him, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He could not finish the sentence because the rest of it is and the day of vengeance of our God. This is a double prophecy. And I want you to get familiar with it because you can be in the middle of a sentence and all of a sudden right here we have a gap of at least 2,000 years. Jesus said this in about 32, 33 A.D., Um, or 30 AD, because this, the rest of the sentence is yet future even for us. He's talking about the great tribulation. The day of vengeance of our God isn't being fulfilled here, but my point is we need to be sensitive uh, because the volume of the book is all about Jesus. Good place for an amen? Amen. That's pretty good. Paul didn't think he would do that well, but he did pretty well. And um, as we get used to this, over and over again, we'll see just how detailed the scriptures are and how we need to be sensitive, like the Lord said, to the, even to the, uh, the, the, the jot and the tittle. Let's continue to read. Verse 22, so he bore witness to them and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to me, you will surely say the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. So that's what we read also in Mark. Here we know for sure he is in Nazareth because it tells us in verse 16. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. Now, we're told this here. Here the Lord is verifying the fact that when Elijah said to Abraham, it's not going to rain until I say so. Here we're told how long it is. For three years and six months. We also read in James that Elijah was just an average guy like me, like you. But when he prayed... It didn't rain for a space of three and a half years. So it's repeated twice in the New Testament. But then we get to Revelation, and we find the two prophets, and it says it doesn't rain for the time of their prophecy. 
The time of their prophecy was exactly three and a half years. So when you put it all together and we read something like that in the book of Revelation, he says, come on, really? It's not gonna rain for three and a half years? How can that be? Well, the wind won't be blowing, according to Revelation 7, verse 1. Four angels are holding back the wind. No wind, no currents, no cycles, no rain. And so it's, it's um, Jesus himself said that it did not rain for three and a half years. James said he was an ordinary guy, but the importance of ordinary people praying can accomplish great things. Another great place for an amen. So... We go on, and it says, But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except uh, Naaman the the Syrian. Then all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. Well, Mark tells us they were offended. Here it says they were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they laid, led him to the bow of a hill, and their own city was built, and that they might throw him off the cliff, so they were going to kill him at this point. Verse 30, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Back to Mark. And as I tried to piece this all together this morning, I came up that I can't, be dogmatic in telling you that the first six verses here happened in Nazareth. It just says, in his country. But what's interesting to me is the same verbiage is used in verse four, a prophet is not without honor. So here's the Lord in his own hometown. And um, they say, we can't believe these things are happening because we know you. We not only know you, but we read here that Jesus had four brothers. Let me just do a little sidetrack here. Roman Catholicism teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. What does that mean? That Jesus was the only one, and that he did not have brothers or sisters. Well, Matthew says exactly the same thing. So if you count him up, he's got four brothers, Sisters are plural, so there's at least two. So now we got four, five, six, and Jesus makes seven, which I think is interesting because it's the number of completion. But it could be eight or nine because sisters could be, who knows. But let's set the record straight. Uh, That is a false teaching. And they've actually glorified and put Mary on a pedestal even to be prayed to. Say so many Hail Marys and so on and so forth. No, that's blasphemy. That's an abomination. It's another gospel to preach and to pray to anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Another good place for an amen. And not being afraid to stand up and say so. And when you hear your Catholic friends saying this, saying, look, if you're going to believe in what the Bible teaches, it's crystal clear what we have in this particular area. All right, that was sort of an introduction this morning. Um, I wanted to go to Isaiah 61 and show the significance of prophecy, how detailed it is. And this morning, as we read in our text that Jesus was not honored in his own hometown, and if it's true for our Lord, then how much more for you and I? The message this morning is geared for the believer 
that is despised by your own family because you are a born-again Christian, I want to encourage you not to stop sharing your faith. Jesus did, and if you look at Matthew 6 again, I want to read verse 2. If this was Nazareth, at least it's an area where everybody knows him, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Well, it could have been Isaiah 61, if it's, if it's, if, um, uh, it's being repeated here. And the Lord, that did not stop him from teaching and preaching, even though they were offended by him. Um, it says, and they marveled, and uh, verse 3 um, is this not the carpenter's son? Mary, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters are here. And they were offended. Now, Luke takes it a step farther and said they actually wanted to kill him. But the same verbiage was, is there. He says, is a, not a prophet without honor except in his own country. So primarily what, um, where I'd like to uh, try to keep the heart of the study in is just to be an encouragement because I know that there's some of you, you're despised and you're rejected for no other reason <laughs> than that you love Jesus. And you don't participate anymore in a lot of the things and it's actually uncomfortable. You're actually hated by your own family members just because you're a Christian. And I don't know if I've ever had a study quite like this one before, but uh, I'm going to do a short overview and show you that this is the norm rather than the exception. That when it comes to people who speak the word of God, where the repercussions are going to come. And if you're, if you're sort of ready for the repercussions, you'll be able to handle it a whole lot better. What does God's word have to say about closeness with family members and the repercussions? Let's begin with where it all begins. How did you get yourself in this mess with your family anyway? So let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, and let's look at Moses. Hebrews chapter 11. You know, Moses was trained, it says, in all the ways of Egypt, probably in line to be the most powerful man in the world. As he sat under Pharaoh, but he made a choice one day. He saw the affliction of the children of Israel, and we read in verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, there's a a word, he made a choice. He said, I'm going to choose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Well, Egypt is a type of the world. So he got himself in this place. You can divide Moses' life up into three 40s. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and then um, 40 years uh, before he got the revelation on Mount Sinai, and then another 40 years of leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. So 120 years total. And it says he esteemed, verse 26, the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he 
looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt. And by faith, when, when we're born again, there's just certain things we forsake. We let them go. And they say, that's part of my old life. I'm coming out of the world. Um, and I'm going to associate with a whole new group of people. It doesn't mean that you still don't have family and friends that you love and care about that aren't born again. But our primary purpose and goal is to be a light to them so that they also can experience um, the peace that we have, the joy that we have. And bottom line, that they spend eternity with Christ in heaven rather than eternity in hell. Those are the consequences. Those are the stakes, my friends. So as we look at this, it begins with this choice. So Moses chose the suffering, acknowledging that if you're going to be a believer, it's going to cost you something. If you go down to verse 36 through 38, it just talks about not just prophets, but people who spoke on behalf of God and what the consequences were for being a believer. So in verse 36, it says, still others had trials of mockings, scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That's what we think happened to Isaiah. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. I love this verse. Of whom the world was not worthy. And they wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. This is how they did it. They came out, they spoke the word of God, but as a result, the consequences for this is that they were despised and hated. Now quickly, just flip over to Luke chapter 20. Jesus actually told a parable about the Old Testament prophets, and he was, a, he was a directing it right at uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. So in Luke chapter 20, picking it up in verse 9, he gives the parable of the vineyard. And basically, it's an overview of how they were treated, these men and women from the Old Testament. Verse 9, then he began to tell the people this story. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to the vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Isaiah tells us that um, Israel was a wild olive tree, and he planted it in a, in a, in a wild grapevine, expecting to get good grapes. But instead, he got wild grapes. So he tried to send the prophets to them to get them back on track. Here's the response in verse 10. So when the harvest time came, vintage time, he sent a servant to the wine dresser, vine dresser, that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent another servant, and they beat him. They also treated him shamefully. They sent him away empty-handed. So these are prophets. So the Lord sent, let me just make it clear, a third prophet, And they wounded him also and cast him out. And the owner of the vineyard said, what am I going to do? He says, I know, I will send my beloved son. Probably they'll respect him when they see him. 
But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, Here's the heir. Come, let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now, Jesus was saying this to the scribes and the Pharisees. Then he quotes Psalm 118, and it's being fulfilled right here. Now, the irony of what I'm about to read is in chapter 19, just the day before, they said to the Lord, because the people were quoting Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. And the Pharisees got all bent out of shape and they said, rebuke your followers. They actually think you're the Messiah. And the Lord says, can't do it. If, if I do that, then the stones will immediately cry out because Psalm 118 was gonna be fulfilled that day. But then what I love, love about the Lord, he does this, he flips Psalm 118 around and uses it against them and he quotes it to them because there's a fulfillment in it. In verse 17, what is that? What is written? Now he quotes Psalm 118. And he says, the stone which the builders rejected, that would be Jesus, has become the chief cornerstone, and whoever falls at that stone will be broken, and whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. This verse right here, we need to look at carefully. Because this tells us you can have one of two relationships with Jesus Christ, and this, this is how it has to happen. He's the stone, you can fall on it and be broken. That's what happens when you come to Christ. You allow this brokenness. You go, Lord, you're right. <laughs> There's nothing good in me. And I have to agree with you. And that's a humbling experience. And in humility, you say, Lord, you saved the wretch like me. And I'm a broken man who, who needs to come to you. So that's one of two. But if you harden your heart, as as the scriptures say, be careful when you, when you hear God's word, not to have a hard heart, but a soft heart, an open mind. Uh, whoever falls on a stone will be broken, but saved. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You know what that makes me think of? Daniel, chapter two. When all the kingdoms of the world are represented by this image of the, world, the world's governments. And out of nowhere comes a stone. Strikes the image and grinds it to powder, exactly what it says right here. So what basically Daniel 2 is telling us, there will be world empires. We're waiting for one world, world government to come up. We're looking at a one world religion. Looks like it's beginning to form. And when the Lord returns, he's gonna return as that stone, and he's gonna strike the, that final world kingdom, and then he's gonna set up his own throne. And that one's going to last forever and ever and ever and ever. Good place for an amen. Reading the end of the book is good. And we, we see how it all turns out in the end. So how do you get yourself into being despised and rejected? Well, Jesus said, and this needs to be taught especially to new believers who come to Christ. Jesus said in John 15, verses 18 and 19, if the world hates you, 
you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, John, when he wrote 1 John, is going to repeat it. First, um, if you're taking notes, it's 1 John 3.13. He says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you, and might I add, even in your own family, for no other reason, that you are always talking about Jesus, and they don't like it. It is a thorn in their side, and you are despised, and if Jesus himself was despised, I often thought about what it must have been like. I get my mind goes on these crazy thinking things. I'm reading about the four brothers. By the way, none of them believed he was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And then James, when James finally gets saved, James is mentioned as one of the brothers. That's the James in Acts chapter 15 who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. When it came for a judgment call and somebody had to make it, James stood up and said, this is what we're gonna do. And he made the, he heard everybody out, but he says, no, this is, this, we'll write a letter to the Gentiles and, and this is how we'll do it. And I was talking to my wife this morning about it. I said, my head is it's screwy because I'm thinking, what was it like growing up with a big brother who's perfect? <laughs> and just living day by day and everybody knowing him All the Bible tells us about Jesus during this time, at the age of 12, until he's introduced by John the Baptist, he submitted himself to mom and dad. And he was a carpenter. And everybody knew him. Now, the thing with family is this. Oh, you tell me you're different now. We know, I grew up with you. I know who you are. And you're telling me now that you're born again and that you're a completely different person. Okay, so you're not doing some of the crazy stuff you used to do, but I know you. You ain't any different. So don't think you're better than we are. And usually that's what we hear. Oh, you got this attitude that you're better than we are now because you're, you're, you're not doing those things that you used to do anymore. Well, that's what they said to the Lord. Even in his own family, growing up, they would not believe on him. Mary knew, of course, and Joseph knew but his brothers and sisters, not till after the resurrection, and only then. I'd kind of like to go and do a short overview of people in family that have had problems because they speak the word of God. So let's begin in Genesis, and let's look at Joseph. Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. Oh, picking it up in verse 5. The setting here is, of course, Israel loved Joseph, verse 3, more than his children because he was a son of old age, and he made him, we call it a coat of many colors. And when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now he has a dream. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So what's, he's, he saw this dream, and he's giving them now the word of God. And as a result of giving them the word of God, his brothers hate him. And they 
he said to them, well, please hear the dream which I have dreamed. Let me witness to you. Let me tell you a little bit about what God gave me about you. Well, there we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then, behold, my sheave arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheave. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Let's make it personal. There's times you want to actually witness and tell your family members about Jesus Christ. Wow, do you know that, what the Bible says about Israel right now? And what's happening? And that the, the prophecies are being fulfilled and you want to talk to them about it. And you want to explain that Jesus is not a religion or a denomination, but he's a person. And you can know him in a personal way. But if they love the world because they're of the world and they don't want to change, family members can be very, very blunt. Good place for an amen. (laughs) And very much in your face. And because you're giving this appearance that somehow you're better than they are. Even though we know that's certainly not true. Matter of fact, the one thing that we do know that we're... Wretches saved by God's grace and made whiter than snow. And all we want to give to them is, listen, I'm, I'm just a, a beggar who found bread and I'd like to share some with you. I remember getting saved. Pretty much all my friends wrote me off. I like to use the analogy of hearing a wonderful song, a beautiful song, and you can't wait to turn your friends on to it. Oh man, it's a great song. You gotta hear the song. Well, that's the way I felt about the Lord. And I wanted to share what I had. And I thought, oh, man, they said they were searching and looking. And and Jesus is real, guys. I remember Pat, my two best friends, Pat Gauhan and and John Mark, both blew me off. They said, Dwight, you're crazy, man. And they wrote me off. Well, one got dramatically saved and serving the Lord, and the other one I'm still praying for. So you never know. The seed can get take hold in one person, and eventually they come around, and, and as far as I know, my other friend to this day has not. Here, we have um, Joseph's brothers actually hating him. Joseph was simply telling his brothers God's word, and they not only didn't want to hear it, but they hated him all the more for it. Let's look at David. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Give you a little bit to get there. First Samuel 17. First Samuel 17, picking it up in verse 26. David is in the valley of Elah, which is east of um, Bethlehem, going towards the Mediterranean. And the army of the Philistines, of course, with Goliath, is lined up against the armies of Israel. And every day they're being taunted for a champion on the part of Israel to come out and fight Goliath. But nobody would do it. Now, the logical one would have been Saul. It said about Saul that he was a head taller than any other man in Israel. So Saul was a big guy. And he would have been 
the logical one. He would have been the representative of Israel, but he wasn't going anywhere. So David comes into this scene, and he's trying to figure it out. So he says in verse 26, David spoke to them who stood by him, saying, well, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, so it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now, big brother steps in. Verse 25, now Eliab, this would have been David's oldest brother, heard that he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was aroused against David and he said, why did you come here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride, David, and your insolence of your heart for you have come down to see the battle. And I love what David says here. And David said, what have I done now? (laughs) How many times have you heard that? (laughs) Now what have I done? What have I done now? And then he says this, is there not a cause? Isn't there a purpose? Why isn't anybody taking on this uncircumcised Philistine? He's a flea in the eyes of the Lord. And so David was sent, and we all know how the story goes out. You've heard your Goliath stories and David's stories. And... um, you know, he's incensed that uh, they would defy the God that he loves. He says, I'm going to take this guy's head off. And yet his older brother, even though this was all part of God's plan for David to someday be king, big brother here is saying, your attitude's wrong. You're full of pride. You're just here because you want to see this fight and this battle. And... Um, my, my question when I read this is, why is Big Brother so upset? And the answer to that is, go back one page, chapter 16, and I'll tell you why. I never saw this before until I was going through the study this week. Why was Iliab so upset with David? And the answer is in chapter 16, and the first, oh, um, five verses here. The Lord has rejected Saul from being king and he's sending Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint David. And the Lord is talking to Samuel. In verse one, the Lord said to him, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from ruling over Israel? I want you to fill your horn with oil and go. For I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. But we don't know which of the sons is going to be anointed king. And Samuel said, well, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, well, take a heifer with you, and you'll say, I'll come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you. Um, And you shall anoint for me the one that I will show you. So Samuel doesn't know which one it is. And so Samuel did what the Lord said and he went to Bethlehem and the elders of of the town trembled at his coming. Wow. When a prophet in those days came to town, it could be trouble. There could be judgment. 
And they were trembling when they saw this man of God coming. And they asked the question, do you come in peace? Are you coming peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. I want you to sanctify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he invited Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, put yourself in Samuel's sandals here. He's checking out, looking at the sons of Jesse, and he says, I'm looking at one of the next king of Israel, the guy who's going to play, take Saul's place. And he's, I could just see Samuel just sort of scoping, checking out who he's looking at. Which one looks like a king here? And so when they came, he looked at Eliab. Now this is the same one that chewed David out for coming to the battle. And Eliab said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. I want you to know that Eliab heard that, okay? But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at the appearance or at his height or of his statute because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, that's definitely true, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And neither has the Lord chosen this one and Shammah. And the Lord hasn't chosen him. And Jesse made all seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. And Samuel said, are these all that are here? And he said, well, there's the youngest. And he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him, bring him here, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And so he sent and brought him, and now he was Rudy, this is David, um, could mean uh, red hair, bright eyes, good-looking kid. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, notice this, in the midst of of his brothers. What did Eliab hear before that? Well, the prophet said, surely the Lord's anointed is this guy right here. He's the biggest one of the group. He he looks like kingship material to me, only to have David now being anointed instead. And it says, and his brothers saw it, and the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, so Samuel arose and went to Ramah. To answer the question, why is Eliab so upset that David shows up on the scene? Because as far as he's concerned, it should have been him. And there's jealousy involved here in a family. Even his own brothers was angry with him. It happened to Joseph. It happened to David. Let's make our way over to Isaiah chapter 53. We were in 61. What was prophesied by Isaiah and what the rabbis have a really hard time reconciling is how could, when the Messiah comes, be a suffering servant and bring in the kingdom as king of kings at the same time? And what they didn't see that as they would reject him, that the gospel would now be open to Gentiles and has been for the last 2,000 years. Romans tells us that um, God has blinded Israel for a season until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now, there's a lot in that verse. 
There's an implication in that verse. It implies that there's a set number of you Gentiles, that when that number is full, then we're out of here, and the next verse 26 says, and then Israel will be saved. God owes Israel seven years. He's not done with them. Romans 11.1 says, has God forsaken his people? Certainly not. But now, what they didn't understand in Jesus' time, they weren't looking for a suffering servant. They were looking for the kingdom to be established. All right, let's look look at the first three verses of Isaiah 53. Who can believe our report? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. He is a man of sorrows. How often do you think of the Lord going around being sorrowful? And he's acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. What is our text? He went to his own hometown, and he was a prophet with no honor. Oh, a prophet has honor, except in his own house. You have friends and believers that love you, but maybe not even in your own house. It says here he was a man of sorrows in verse Three. You know that Jesus wept twice. In Luke 19, when he knew he was going to be rejected, first of all, that's what it says in John's Gospel. If you're taking notes, John 1.11, he came to his own, Israel, and his own received him not. And then in Luke 19, I quoted this earlier as uh, on Mount of Olives, As he was drawing near on that Palm Sunday, he saw it, and he wept over it. And here's the man of sorrows. You know, I try to to picture the Lord weeping um, and being sorrowful because knowing that he's going to be rejected by his own people. And he said, if you'd only known, especially in this year day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from you. And unfortunately, the consequences are going to be the day is going to come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you in and close you in on every side. This would literally be fulfilled 38 years later in 70 AD when the Romans came down and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And they haven't been back in the land until a nation, May 14th, 1948. And so... In verse 44, and they'll level you and your children to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why is all this going to happen? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Another implication. You mean they were supposed to know when the Messiah was going to come? Absolutely. The rabbi should have been teaching Daniel chapter 9, because it tells you to the very day. And they should have been saying, well, we're looking for a a lowly servant-type character riding a donkey, and that's how we're going to recognize him, just like John the Baptist recognized him when the Holy Spirit came down upon him. Oh, that's him right there. And, but the Lord said the very reason for the destruction of Jerusalem 
is because they did not know the time when he would actually come. Let's go from the Lord and let's use one New Testament example of being rejected by family with uh, the apostle Paul. Um, it says, in, if you're taking notes, Philippians 3, 5, uh, Paul has to establish his apostleship. So he is bragging about his Jewishness to Jews. And he says, I was circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. So he's saying, um, I'm establishing that um, I'm of Jewish blood of the tribe of Benjamin, and concerning the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisee and the Sadducees were strict about keeping the law. I went online and researched this for quite a while, and um, I wanted to know, because being a Pharisee, according to the law, you were pretty much required to be married, be fruitful and multiply. The Sadducees even take it a step further, it was mandatory. Okay, this is where I have to be careful. In doing my research on this yesterday, going online and Googling, was Paul married? I found out it's 50-50. Some said absolutely, because, because of the fact that he was a Pharisee. And some say we can't prove that, because he talks about being single, having the gift in 1 Corinthians. And, but that doesn't mean, and this is my personal, what I'm gonna tell you right now is personally what I think happened. Imagine being married, the Pharisees were, and you come home every night mad as a hornet because it's this cult that's out there that's called the way, Christians. And he come home and he's venting out his wife. And every night he comes home and he says, those Christians, they're just messing everything up. And I am ticked off. Uh, somebody should be doing something about this. Matter of fact, I think I'll do something about this. So because of the persecution, everybody's leaving town. And Paul gets radically saved. We, we call it a road to Damascus conversion. He's going up there for one reason, to find Christians and put them in jail. And he gets knocked off of his high horse, and he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, or Paul, Paul, isn't it hard to kick a cactus? Ever try to kick a cactus? I've run into one, don't do it. It's a long time pulling those things out, they hurt. And he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And he's blind for the next three days. And in the darkness, he sees the light, and he gets saved. Now, my guess is we're talking about family members. Go with me to Mark chapter 10 at this time. Mark chapter 10. I think Paul was married. And I believe when his wife found out about it, she probably thought because she didn't have the experience, she wasn't there. How in the world of all the people, Paul, you would betray your own people and become one of them? Now again, this is my personal thinking and um, I could be wrong, but I think Paul's wife took off as a result of Paul's conversion to Christianity. We read in, in uh, verse 29, this is Mark a little bit farther. 
Peter said they had left all to follow the Lord, and Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left, notice, houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife, interesting he would throw that in, or children or lands for my sake and the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now and in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers. Let me just stop and explain this. If his own family rejected him, I'm speaking to many people here in live stream this morning. You've been set aside by your family because of what you've done. But the Lord is saying, I'm gonna give you a new family and it's gonna be a hundredfold more. I know some of the trials that some of you go through because of your family. And this whole message this morning is supposed to encourage you that this is what the Bible teaches, what happens, that it happened even to the, the Lord himself. He was a prophet with no honor, and he was despised. And, but then he says, don't worry about it. Now, I'm fortunate in my family because everyone of my brothers and sisters um, not sure about the one that just passed recently, but the rest of my family is not only born again, but they're actively involved in some degree or another in ministry, serving the Lord. So I am very, very fortunate. So I have two families. <laughs> I have all of you, which is a hundredfold more than the five that I grew up with, and um, my cl- closest relatives. And when the Lord says, if, if you will follow me and count the costs and leave it all behind, even if it means a father or a mother or a wife or children or lands, I'll give that all back to you. You'll have such a big family of brothers and sisters in the Lord that you can uh, fellowship with. And lands, notice it says, with persecution, and in the age to come, you're gonna have eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. I'm going to begin to close this up this morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. My Bible, just turn right over to it. Matthew 10. And in closing, sort of a word of encouragement to those of you who are despised and you're an offense to your family because your life is all about Jesus and they don't like it. If they showed no respect to Jesus in his own hometown, again, how much more for you and I? Know that Jesus taught this, and this surprises a lot of people, but this is um, probably one of the most important scriptures in, in Matthew 10, verse 32. He says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Joseph did. David did. Paul did. Jesus did. And um, as a result, they were hated. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. Well, Dwight, what about that scripture at Christmas time? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. 
Well, I'm taking a look around the world <laughs> and I'm not seeing it. What do we see? The world falling apart. Just the opposite. Well, then what did Jesus mean? The translation error in the wording is there will be peace among those who have peace with God. So how do you make peace with God? There's only one way. And that's by coming to him, um, being born again, and coming out of the world and being a witness for him. And when you do that, he says, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes will be those of his own household. How many times is that preached in the pulpit today? I'll tell you, not many. No, 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 no. You... You leave this place feeling happy clappy. <laughs> I want to pump you up. You go out, leave them laughing as they say. And the church is buying into this motivational type stuff to pump you up. But is that reality? No, what, is, what does God's word teach about you being a Christian? Everything that we read this morning gives the idea that if you're really going to be a Christian that you're gonna be despised and rejected just like our Lord. In his own house, and he's the Lord. How much more for you and I? And now the Lord makes it clear, a man's own foes will be those of his own household. Be encouraged. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus has to be first. Husbands, listen to me. You have to love Jesus first. Wives, listen to me. You have to love Jesus first. The rest of it will fall in place. When you put the Lord first, then the rest of it just falls in naturally. But what comes with that, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In closing, let me say this. And some of you are saying, this is the third time, Dwight, you said in closing, let me say this. Well, you just keep on keeping on. Just keep on keeping on Confessing Jesus, maybe, eventually, maybe eventually, just like Jesus, brothers and sisters, they all got saved eventually, but not till after the resurrection. So, when all is said and done at the end of the day, uh, you stay the course, even though at times it may cost you family members. Um, you don't compromise. You keep on telling the truth, loving on them. We're told to speak the truth in love. And we don't come across higher than I or we're better than you are. But um, don't stop doing it. But just know this, the consequences, biblically speaking, as in our study this morning, is there will be repercussions. The Lord says, don't think I've come to bring peace in the house. No, 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 just the opposite. It's going to be division all because of your stand for Jesus Christ. Good place for an amen. amen? Let's stand up, we'll pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. And as we make our way through the gospel of Mark, that you said a prophet is not without honor except in his own house. Lord, I pray for families this morning here at Calvary Chapel, Appleton, those watching live stream. They are hated by their family. And I I pray, Lord, that they would not lose heart. But as we've studied your word this morning, 
from the Old Testament into the New, we see it's the, the norm. That when we take a stand for you and say that we're called out of this world, that um, this is what your word teaches. So we're grateful for the scriptures. And um, I hold up these families, encourage them, Lord, to keep on keeping on. Keep on sharing with their loved ones. And we pray for those <clears throat> that have family members that aren't saved yet, that somehow we pray like we always do, Lord, whatever it takes to bring them so that they will go to heaven and not go to hell. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.